You can switch me on now. Oh, I'm switched on. How marvellous. And I get to get up here in an amazing way. So welcome, folks. And yes, sorry about the temperature. Um, I'm going to get you to jump up and down halfway through. And that's true, not true. Um, so as uh, Patrick uh, quite rightly said, I'm Simon Grennan. Uh, I'm a graphic novelist. Uh, and I'm here to, uh, uh, well, obviously, I'm here to promote my new book, uh, which is called Dispossession, lovely big poster over there, uh, which is um, the first graphic adaptation of one of the later novels of the great and remarkable Victorian novelist, Anthony Trollope. And we'll get into it. We'll get into all of that. Somebody looks shocked already, which is good. Um, so thanks, Patrick. Yeah, and Patrick and I met uh, in in North Wales, and I'm I'm very grateful that he said that comics are better than better than literature. Um, that's what I'm going to be talking about. So I have a, an interesting. Yes, let's, uh, I might curtsy a little as we go through the talk um, to bob up and down like this, but uh, don't mind me. We have some interesting technology. So uh, essentially, what I'm going to talk about today is, is different, obviously, in, uh, to, uh, to some maybe talks that you hear at lit fest fests from folks who write text, from folks who write literature. And I'm not going to gloss the fact that there are real differences between making something that's drawn uh, and making something that's simply text, simply text. Um, and so what I'm not going to do, right at the end maybe, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, in the way that maybe novelists talk about their new novel when they're on this kind of circuit. And now I'm going to describe how emotionally intense the work is and how uh, important it is. And it deals with gr the great themes of humanity and, uh, and gets to grips with his history. Um, and that those are all great reasons for you to buy one and take it home and read it. Uh, but actually, uh, I'll leave that right till the end. I'm going to talk about something much more unusual in the context of a, a, li a literary festival, any literary festival. Um, and I'm going to talk about how I made the book, how I made the graphic novel. Um, and so uh, it's really, um, uh, the talk is not about the plot. Um, and the plot kind of leads to, talk about the plot leads to talk of emotional intensity, dealing with history and reasons for buying the, the great literature. Um, but actually, it's not I'm, not, I'm not really going to talk about the plot. And I'll explain why in a bit. Um, but, of course, uh, the plot is there. And so the plot, the, the plot of dispossession uh, is, um, yeah, hold on, let's do this thing with sort of curtsy little. Yeah, excellent, well, you see all of this. So, of course, dispossession is an adaptation. And so it takes an existing work of great, of literature, maybe great literature, uh, from the late 19th century, and it turns it, it, turns it into something else. It's, it shows and draws what, 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 it draws the plot. So you see the plot, rather than being told what happens, you see what happens, and this is a kind of major difference. Um, and so uh, already, plot-wise, fine, um, there's an existing plot. When this book appeared, uh, the Daily Mail featured it, um, and there's a, indeed, uh, there's a, a reason for that. Um, Anthony, Trollope, uh, Anthony Trollope has adherents uh, uh, in the form of the Trollope Society, members of the Trollope Society, and the editor of the Daily Mail is a member of the Trollope Society. <laughs> No, absolutely. And so the, the headline, the headline uh, on, the, on the puff piece for Dispossession, where actually he's really interested in Trollope, not really about graphic novels, was uh, bigamy, uh, blackmail and, and betrayal. Uh, the new graphic novel by Anthony Trollope. Now, yeah, no, no, it's excellent. So this is great. I love this. This is fine. So this is a relationship that this book, the, gra the, the graphic novel, has to its existing, its source, the novel by Trollope. So dealing with all of that, and so yes, uh, you know, so there is Trollope's novel, and I'll get to that in a bit. But first, 
there's the plot, yeah, there's a plot, we'll get to that in a bit. But first I want to talk a little bit about, about the difference between literature and comics, and the difference between literature and graphic novels, uh, and how you make an adaptation, i.e. how you learn about and read a source, like Trollope's novel, and turn it into something else. So let's do this curtsy. Okay, so, uh, can everyone see all of this? Clear? It's a little, little dim, but good, sorry about that. So in terms of the comic, um, I've already, I've been at the festival three days and uh, there hasn't been so much of it here, but often folks, and a little bit here, uh, folks talk about comics as a way to introduce people to great literature. And so there's a notion that the comic is a childish form. Uh, and certainly in the UK that's true. Uh, elsewhere not so true. But it's a fact, is that there's a notion that the, comic, the comics, comics are, chi are children's, a children's medium uh, and that they are, because they're images, because they, they show the plot in images, they work towards an introduction to the real work of books that are, what did I say before, emotionally intelligent, deal with history, are greatly significant in terms of a kind of adult themes. And so if literature is, is seen as difficult, uh, and maybe even here, there's some folks here who might find Trollope difficult, it's long, it's about the 19th century, nothing happens, all about vicars and so if you if, why actually why would you want to introduce anyone to uh, anyway so <laughs> interesting thought I've had that before so okay so so if, so there's this notion okay and so you have here you, so you have a canon actually there's a canon in comics of uh, books graphic books that are made exactly on that premise they are books that are explicitly designed to introduce kids to the great the greats to to the literary canon. Um, and so, um, yeah, there, there is, so they are in literally introducing the canon to kids. So here we have, really great, this is from the mid-50s. This is a comic Macbeth, obviously. Uh, Don Quixote. Uh, Faust, excellent. I mean, how do you, as a comic, Faust as a comic. <laughs> no, no, really, excellent. Uh, and so, um, so essentially what this does, this trick, which these books, and these are 50s books, but they're still going on, and I'll show you some more as we go. Um, this trick is, uh, uh, operates like this, is that in, in the comics for kids, there are genres of comic. And so we have, for kids, romance comics, and it's, of course this is low literature comics, romance, adventure, uh, science, science fiction, uh, and, co and conflict, war. So you've got war comics, romance comics, science fiction comics, adventure comics. And so they, the, what, the trick that they pull in these introductory visual texts, introducing kids to the great lit literary classics, is to shoehorn the classic into one of those genres. So, for instance, we have, let's do this, sorry, curtsy again. Hold on, does that work? Oh yes, Jane Eyre, fantastic. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, is this adventure or romance? Actually, it's romance. Uh, we have, let's see, Moby Dick. Yeah, indeed. Who's, uh, yeah, quite. Frankenstein, obviously. Ivanhoe. Less, yeah, Silas Marner. What the, this is great, isn't it? Okay. Uh, uh, let's see, what do we turn great expectations into? Great expectations. I mean, the interesting thing about that as a kind of coda is that actually if you read, if you know these novels, if you know Great Expectations and Silas Marner and Ivanhoe, etc., etc., and you look at these comics, you can actually read the classic, you can read the canonical literature through the comic, so suddenly you start to see just how schlocky and, uh, and kind of emotionally stupid Jane Eyre is as a novel. 
Anyway, so, all right. No, no. So, if, I mean, yeah, okay. So, so, there, so this is a two-way street is really what I'm saying. But th these books function, these, these, are, these are shortened versions of, uh, and they, they are explicitly designed to introduce kids to, rather than the other way around. These are not for literature and culture students wanting to reread Great Expectations through 50s comics. These are meant to literally do that. They're easier to read because there's fewer words. And in fact, my, no my graphic novel is called A Novel of Few Words. It has fewer words than the original. Um, and they're just easier. They're meant to be easier. Whether they are or not, not sure. So, um, yeah, so you've got dressing up literature as adventure. Uh, and then this is the killer. This is the killer slide in this section before we move on. Um, who knows the Moonstone? Wilkie Collins' Moonstone. Everyone, okay, all right, good. Think about, think about the Moonstone for a moment while I introduce you to the cover of a 50s comic that introduces kids to the reading of the Moonstone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, is, wow. <laughs> Excellent. So you see how there's this, sh <laughs> this shoehorning uh, of, uh, of, the, of, of some type of plot, either like plot of the Moonstone, into some generic idea of what a kid's comic is to introduce kids to the literature. So this scene doesn't appear anywhere in the Moonstone. In fact, I don't know quite what... Well, so this is a scene that appears somewhere in the vicinity of the plot of the movie. It's just, anyway, it's mad. So, okay. So, all right. So, so, um, so I've kind of, in a way, although I'm being quite sophisticated about this, and particularly mentioning rereading the greats through comics that are essentially designed to introduce them the other way around, introduce the greats, um, I've kind of talked them down. I've, I've kind of said, okay, well, actually, uh, these comics are funny. They're not, they aren't explicit, they explicitly aren't great. They're not canonical. Uh, they feed off, as adaptations, they feed off the literature that they seek to introduce and their qualities are meta qualities, para qualities more, more like. They sit beside the great literature. So you can, so we all go, oh, and actually it is funny. I've read The Moonstone, you think, whoa, that's an audacious, fine, great. But these, I don't think these are bad qualities but this is what they were for. So you think, okay, this, for me, this kind of thing adds to the literature. It all accumulates my knowledge of the Moonstone, in fact, is enlarged, uh, made richer by this kind of addition of this kind of para information, this kind of beside information that has some kind of other function. But the thing that's really key about this kind of idea and this kind of approach to comics and literature or comic adaptations of literature is that it's all about the plot. And so you have this odd situation where the canonical literature, the greats of literature, are read because they are assumed to have or presented as having qualities which are uh, continually relevant and that they are profoundly significant. That's what we read literature for, is to transform ourselves. It's a transformative. And so an 18th century great novel, a 19th century great novel, a 21st century great novel is meant to have this kind of effect. Um, but, 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 that's not, what, that's not what these things do. They don't say, oh, the Moonstones, they don't, they don't show that the Moonstone is great for those reasons. In fact, all these things do, these types of comics, um, is, to, um, is to introduce kids to the reading of a story, i.e. the plot. So they're all about the plot. So that's why they all kind of look similar. They all look like 50s comics. Of course they do. You wouldn't, if they looked any different, then kids, the kids who they were designed for wouldn't pick them up. They have to look generically like a comic that a kid will read, otherwise it's not going to work. So we have this problem as adapters 
uh, which, is, which is the focus exclusively on what happens. And so does the greatness of Jane Eyre lie in what happens in the plot? Does the greatness of Silas Marner lie in the story? Or are there other things? What about the style of the writing? What about the differences in, uh, in kind of emotional tone that are not necessarily motivated by the plot? Uh, particularly in 19th century novels, you have whole pages of certain types of psychological exposition, particularly psychological exposition, where the, the plot doesn't drive forward at all. Um, and so, you know, we were mentioning Scott, Waverley, you've got 36 pages and the plot, nothing's happened. It's part of the greatness of the work. So how do you, what's that about? So this is all plot, this is all plot. Um, one of the things that's really overlooked in kind of doing this work then um, is that there may be other things at play. And the other things at play uh, um, are, are, are things that produce these great effects in the, in the canon canonical literature. And so the, the big, big part of that, big, uh, the big thing is, is the style in which canonical literature is written. And style is a very slippery concept, literary concept. And so we know that uh, the style of uh, a Bronte novel is not the, uh, the style of, uh, has he gone already? Not the style of a Patrick Gale. Um, both greats in their own way. Uh, they're simply, the differences are not differences of plot or history or period so much as, well, of course they are, but th they're not those things or they are those things, but as much as all of that, they are differences in the way in which the writing is put together. The nuts and bolts of. And, and we, often th we often think of that as, be, as being attached to the author. So you say, well, oh, you know, uh, yes, Jane, Jane, Austen, uh, Jane Austen wrote like Jane Austen because she was Jane Austen. Uh, Dickens wrote like Dickens because he was Dickens, and they were different people, and hence, and hence, the style that they write in is different. This is absolute rubbish. Of course, their biographical, historic kind of situation, their personal histories, their own interests, influence and inflect the way in which they can stylistically do things what's possible for them. But that's not what's going on. They are craftspeople. Austin, Austin is crafting the novel. This is not, this is doesn't just, she's not just breathing out Jane onto the page. <laughs> we know people think this. It's extraordinary. It's just, so she's working hard, revising, thinking, feeling it. And she's, so, and so it's craft. It's not a natural kind of ex, ex, uh, what's the word? Exhalation, yeah. So, so um, how does this all work with this kind of relationship between making adaptations and showing, showing things rather than telling them, remediating a text, for instance? So, so style is where I'm going with this. The next section, so we've done a bit about literature for kids, introducing literature to kids, all about the plot, even though the plot, we understand, isn't really what makes the literature so great, necessarily. So uh, style, okay. So style is kind of overlooked in these kind of productions. Um, so let's have a look at this. Hold on, I'm gonna have a curtsy again. Excuse me. Christmas Carol. Um, this is a page from one of those comics, the interior of one of those comics, and another one. Um, and so you think, okay, um, we've all read it. I think we've all, have we all read a Christmas Carol? Okay, let's assume we have. Um, this, is this is pretty crap compared to the, the, the sensation of reading, or even the sensation of visualizing while you're reading A Christmas Carol. Christmas Carols are fantastically visually rich. It's fantastically rich. If you were going to try and emulate visually Dickens' style of writing in A Christmas Carol, you wouldn't do this, would you? This is poor. 
compared to the images that Dickens, the way in which those images are developed, recapitulated, uh, thematically used, the rhythm of Dickens' visions in his writing is incredibly rich. That's one of the reasons we love it. This is terribly small beer. What a lost opportunity. So this is kind of random. And it breaks down because they're using comic conventions entirely, only conventionally, as conventions. In fact, the folks who make these works, or made these works, to introduce Dickens to kids, uh, weren't, were, actually weren't interested in Dickens at all. They certainly weren't interested in analysing how, so, how an opportunity could be made of these books. They simply needed to make a comic out of a Dickens plot, and that's what they were doing. So there's a kind of sense of lost opportunity. You think, well, if I was going to make a Dickens adaptation in comic book form, well, I mean, I might learn something from this because I think, well, I'm not doing it like that. Uh, so that's what I did. I've, this, I've made my own graphic adaptations, a little handy like this. So that's fine. Um, so there's this problem with this kind of thing, and this is an inherent problem, is that the st style is overlooked as a major way in which you can communicate what's going on. Not just the plot, but the style of the thing. Style's meaningful, in a, in a sense. So. Uh, this is, uh, so yeah, okay, there's, so for instance, oh dear, what have I done there, sorry. Yeah, so if you compare this to the first illustration of A Christmas Carol, and this is John Leach's illustration, then this is visually even, this is rich compared to the crap comic, quite frankly. And then of course we know this, um, Rackham, Arthur Rackham's illustration to A Christmas Carol, it's a fantastic piece. And so suddenly Dickens is matched, Dickens' vision, it's not produced, because Dickens produces his own vision in text, but this matches it. This is as rich as it. This, it, this increases and accumulates Dickens visually. Okay, so, um, today, so these, I've shown some old stuff, uh, the, the comics that we were kind of laughing at from the 50s and 60s, uh, and that kind of stuff goes on still, but um, there are, well, there are graphic adaptations of the 19th century, of novels of the 19th century are still current, so people do then. They produce, one was produced last week. Uh, so I'm going to show you some. Uh, okay, and, and, I'm going to, uh, and I'm setting this whole thing up uh, because I'm going to tell you just how bad they are. <laughs> well, apart from mine, obviously, yeah. So um, this, is, uh, this, is an this is a page from an adaptation uh, of, uh, of uh, Conan, Conan Doyle's uh, The Sign of the Four, Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, and this is a page from uh, uh, Ian Colbard. So this is Ian Colbard. This was produced, I don't know, uh, five years ago. This is a page from uh, Ian, Col Ian Colbard's, uh, oh, sorry about the dimness, but anyway. Uh, sorry, this, this is, so this is a page from, from his adaptation of Charles Dexter, Dexter Ward's The King in Yellow, which is a late 19th century set of supernatural stories. And The King in Yellow, the King in Yellow is as unlike The Sign of the Four as it's possible to be. And so what's the problem here? The problem here is um, that, uh, oops, hold on, where am I going with this? Go back one. Yeah, you know, so, okay, Ian Colbard, in the back of your mind, the person who's making the adaptation, fine. Uh, Conan Doyle, think, okay, all right, whatever, yeah, Conan Doyle, yeah. Well, how is it that Colbard's adaptation of Conan Doyle is stylistically identical to his adaptation of another author? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, that would seem to me to be a kind of no-brainer. You know, uh, 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 Charles Dexter Ward is not Conan Doyle, or vice versa, and if you've read The King in Yellow, it really isn't Conan Doyle. So what's Colbard doing? Is he making it his own? I draw everything, says Colbard, like this. I draw everything like this, whether it's a scene in China, whether it's set in the 19th century, the 18th century, or the 21st century, I am Colbard, and this is what I look like. And you think, uh, no, that's not good enough either. 
so, and still, so what we have here is plot. It's all about the plot. Colbard just takes a bit of, well, not a bit, the whole plot, actually. Um, no, does anyone know Ian Colbard in the room? So I've just been rude about him. Okay, well, <laughs> right. okay it's really shitty. Oh, no, don't podcast this. Oh, are you podcasting Too late, this? You're I am. Oh, he's my uncle. Oh, he's my... Who said that? <laughs> well, tell him to stop making bad no, books. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry, excuse me. Okay, so, um, all right. I mean, so I'm going to make a little note. Uh, fans of Mozart, okay? I mean, I've already gone about Colbert a little bit. Fans of Mozart, uh, the Mozart of, uh, um, uh, the Mozart of Don, Don Giovanni, uh, is, uh, is not the Mozart stylistically of Mitridati, two operas by Mozart. And there's a reason for that. Uh, that's because Mozart's a great artist. Ian Colbard, no, anyway, so I'm going to show you. And plus, these folks, they keep on using all the great, like, I really like to make an adaptation of The King in Yellow. And because one was produced by a graphic novelist last year, he's used it, ticked it. No publisher will look at it for 10 years. So I think, oh, for God's sake. Because he draws really quickly, he's just going through the whole... <laughs> right, anyway, onward, onward. So, okay, so there are, there, are, there are some other, you know, other adaptations. So this is an adaptation, this is David Stafford, this is new material, this is all new material in the last five years. David Stafford's adaptation of uh, Victor Hugo's uh, La The Laughing Man on Kiki, which, and you think, okay, if you read the Hugo, there are stylistic parallels. Re replacements, ideas, ideas. This is enriching, I think. I think that Stafford's uh, work is enriching Hugo. Uh, yeah, and then so we have, this is, this is the main character, the laughing man, in the Hugo adaptation. Uh, and that's fine, but there, and that's good. There's a kind of response to the, the text. How does the text work? Stylistic response, very important. I mean, I claim, actually, Onkigri... Does anyone know the Hugo laughing man? We're good, okay, great. Well, the thing is that Onkigri has a, has a comics, little fillet of comics. Uh, a comics antecedent, in a sense, oh no, postcedent. It, it has a relationship to comics, and the reason for that is this, because this is the Joker in Batman. And actually, I'd claim, I'd I'd claim that Bob, Bob Kane, who drew, who drew Batman, first off, I'd claim that this is a much better on Kiki uh, than, than any other I've seen, in a way. So, so then what, what we have is, okay, so then there are others. We've got uh, St uh, Stefan Huey's uh, reckless, reckless adaptation. Of, uh, of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. How do you make a comic adaptation of that? <laughs> right, um, yeah. So, the, the, so okay, so uh, Remembrance of Things Past has a, it, there's a name for its style. Proust kind of, he didn't invent it, but there's a name for it. So Proust's Stream of Consciousness, that's the, that's the style. Proust's style is a great example of. And so you'd think that Stefan would kind of try and do something with Stream of Consciousness, uh, but he doesn't. What he does is this. Remembrance of things past. This is the bloody Madeleine scene. Cut the swearing out of the podcast. Um, and you think, okay, so I call, I've got a, something which I read out here, like verbatim, because I really like the way I've put it. I call it radically poor in 12 volumes. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, not good, not good. Uh, yeah, no, quite. So let's show you some good adaptations. I think are good adaptations of, of literary classics. And this is Catherine Anyango's, uh, this is a double page spread, Heart of Darkness, of Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Think about Ka uh, Catherine Anyango, she uses hardly any of Conrad's text. And yet it's more Conradian, it's more, it's more communicative, it's emotionally as punchy, uh, it's as complex as the Conrad. Uh, and that's great. She knows what she's doing visually. Is there another one of those? Yeah, there's another, this is another page. So we have a total work. The plot, 
you get uh, the, uh, historiogra the historiographic aspect. I'm adapting that from the past, she says. I'm here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Conrad. I'm doing this. The style. She does all of it. So, another one, another spread. Okay. And then we have a couple of things I'm just going to show to, and then we'll get to the, the real meat of it, uh, my book. <laughs> no, obviously, obviously. So this is, the, uh, this is one of the pages from uh, Moby Dick from one of those 50s. I mean, actually, this is really mad. Um, and this is, this is pretty poor as a, as a kind of stylistic response to Moby Dick. That's really not... Okay, classics illustrated Moby Dick from the 50s. Um, there's an interesting idea in Moby Dick, uh, which is central in a way, um, which anybody who's read Moby Dick will come across in one way or another if they've read it and paid any attention at all. So, it, so it's a common idea, like stream of consciousness with Proust. It's a kind of out there idea. You don't need to be a scholar. Um, and the idea is that Ahab in Moby Dick uh, is tyrannical. He is, the, he is <coughs> univocal. What Ahab, what Ahab says is true. And, what that, and there's an identification of that in, by, by Melville with the plot. So the story, is Ahab, the story of Moby Dick, what happens in Moby Dick, is Ahab. And then the Ishmaelian part of Moby Dick, I'm getting into some detail, for especially for those who haven't read Moby Dick, apologies. Uh, the Ishmaelian part of it is, what do I call it, poly, polysemic, incomplete, discursive, so stylistic. Emotional. So Ahab is the plot in Moby Dick, and Ishmael is the, Ishmael is the style of production, the way of telling. Uh, and that is realised by folks who really understand Moby Dick as, as graphic adapters. And you get some startling results. You can't see that at all. We'll move on to the next one. You get some startling, startling results. These are from three or four different... Look at this. Yeah, that's the eye of the white whale. This is a portrait of Ahab. Yeah, this is from a book, yeah, no, quite. This is, from, this is from a book that deals with all of that stylistically. The way in which it draw, it's drawn is as important as what is told. So, okay, all right, so having given you all of that kind of introduction, we get to the, uh, the towering achievement <laughs> of, uh, uh, yeah, so, okay, so dispossession. Uh, I was commissioned to make the adaptation, so it's unusual. It's an unusual adaptation. Uh, Trollope's Bicentenary was in 2015, the Bicentenary of his birth. Uh, there was a lot of festivities uh, in 2013. A, a university in Leuven, Belgium, commissioned me to make a graphic adaptation of a novel by Anthony Trollope. And there's, yeah, no, indeed. And I'm not going to tell you why they did that, because um, I'm really, really expensive. Uh, yeah, they paid me to do it. It's extraordinary. Yeah, so no, that doesn't mean you don't have to buy the book, obviously. Um, so, yeah, so the story of how, why they did that uh, is, is, is a coda, a rather nice coda, illustrated coda, in the back. So I'm not going to tell you, I have to buy the book to Yeah, obviously, obviously. So I, so I, so I was commissioned to adapt. I was, I was tasked by university with adapting a great classic of 19th century literature, I, the uh, Trollope novel. Um, and we chose one, we, cho we chose one, and we did all of that work. It took two, year, two years, two months to do the whole thing from beginning to end. Um, and so, what do we have with Trollope? I'd read Trollope. Uh, oops, excuse me. Oh, is that not doing that? Oh, I pressed the wrong button, sorry. Oh, no, look, disaster. Tex, Tex, help me. Help me, Tex, while I talk. That's the one I want with Susan Hampshire. I've, I've just clicked off the slideshow, sorry. So, there, so, what I did immediately is I looked at, uh, I looked at um, adaptations of Trollope that existed already, and, and essentially they exist on television. 
So at the time, so the palaces were a great series of Trollope novels, the, the, the palace series of Trollope novels um, from the 1860s and 70s. Uh, on telly adapted in the 70, in 1970s. That's, yeah, that's great, thank you, excellent. Yeah, fantastic, thank you. Uh, Susan Hamp shows Lady Glencora. Uh, it's fair, you think, okay. Uh, I uh, criticised, uh, as um, you can see what I'm like. I, I criticised, I uh, didn't criticise her, well, I, I criticised her as her casting uh, to the London chapter of the Trollope Society, and they gasped. Um, audibly, audibly gasped. Um, so, that, yeah. So, you think, okay. So, I looked at all of this thing, and it, given what I've just said about, about the vi visual style and plot, and the seriousness, in, in a sense, of dealing with literature, which we understand actually has qualities which are great, enduring, uh, because we're, we're carrying on reading them. Then, and the inadequacy, potentially, of not really dealing, the responsibility that one has to the source, in a way, not that one can't be radical, but if there's great, if there, if there's great work being done, if someone's done something with such craft, then one should, I feel, understand how that craft has been brought into being and articulated and manipulated. And in fact, that's the interest. Why is Trollope great? Why is Trollope Trollope? Why is a Trollope novel not an Austen novel? So all these questions are great. TV adaptations like this are essentially, I mean, I'm not going to demean them because they're incredibly entertaining. Telly is not about, under, you know, the, the, the Palliser series is not about understanding Trollope. It's about telling a 19th century story with Susan Hampshire. Um, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. Uh, we can have a long extended conversation about Julian Fellows, if you like. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but actually he's a major Trilopian, so he knows just how bad he's being. So, where are we? Um, so this is all a bit dull. The, the Trollope stuff didn't really get to that, so I didn't find anything to kind of pique, pique my interest in the way that I'm kind of talking to you about it. So, um, so dressing up, fine. But people often gauge costume dramas and talk about costume dramas, particularly on the films and telly, by, by, the, by the accuracy of the, of the frocks, the accuracy of the eyebrows. Uh, were they using that particular kind of carriage in 1863? Um, would Lady Glencora have been wearing that particular type of silk? Would she have, said, would she have used the word lavatory? Uh, was the word shift indecent or not, if she said it above stairs? All these things true, yeah, no, please. The Victorian age is just very good. So you think, okay, um, that's all fine, but that kind of verisimilitude is a narrow verisimilitude. Uh, we know when we're watching uh, uh, this show that this is Susan Hampshire. And we also know that under her frock, however accurate it is, she's got some underwear on. I th well, no, we don't know that. Actually, no, I did, no, it's not true. I sat next to her at dinner and asked her that question, so I'm gonna claim she was wearing underwear. Excellent. So the thing is that, La that Lady Glencora, and this is an obvious thing to say, is that Lady although La Lady Glencora is a character, uh, she wouldn't have been wearing underwear. And that's, a, it's, it, uh, yeah, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Um, and so the frock is a kind of, what well, I'm going to call the frock in costume drama, is a, kind of, uh, is a kind of icing on a cake that may or may not be substantial. And so the idea of verisimilitude is not about, it's not about, appearance. It's partly about appearance. It's not really about appearance. Um, it's, about, it's about the whole visual story world. It's about everything that's possible and impossible. And I, I, uh, I love the word. We love the word versimilitude. Yeah. Versimilitude, and that's what I mean when I say that. I'm going to say versimilitude is understanding, understanding that, that something is possible 
Now, and that means it was impossible for Lady Glencora or character of her <coughs> class, a woman of her class, although she's a fictional character, it was impossible for her uh, in the world of Trollope, in the story world of Trollope, in the Palliser novels, for her to be wearing underpants, underwear. And that kind of thing is, it's absolutely, if, if Lady Clencora fell over in the street because, and her skirt blew up because a gust of wind took it, yeah. It's a great story, great story about that happening with a crinoline elsewhere, not Lady Glencora in the 50s. Skirt goes up, centre of London, a handsome cab driver catches a glimpse, crashes the cab. So, verisimilitude. Um, so when I came to adapt Trollope's novel, John Caldergate, which is the one that I, that I eventually did adapt, this is, a, this is where we're going, this is in the book, um, the visual, visual grounding is not just research, it's getting a notion of impossibility and possibility. And that's this. So, this is the, so I'm just going to show you some stuff which is, which is grounded in elements of that. And you say, well, this is historically true. This did look like that, this did do that. This is the birdcage, uh, which is at Newmarket, ra the racing pen where horses come to parade themselves in the 1870s. Uh, hold on, let's give this a go. Uh, Cambridge, Cambridge, Cambridge Rowing Club, these are all scenes, these are all scenes from the novel. Uh, this is a real place, Sutton Galt uh, in Cambridgeshire. Um, this is the Bilandaran clan, clan in New South Wales, 1870. Yeah, so again, the picture, uh, and, and of course, the thing is that you have sources for all this stuff which do and don't give you the information. Uh, he will have been wearing trousers, uh, his wife won't have, uh, uh, underwear, his wife won't have. You can't see that in the picture, but it's kind of important. Robert Braithwaite Martineau, last day in the old home, very famous. Um, yeah, so you get these kind of things where I'm kind of using all of that. And yes, it's, it's superficial in a sense, fashion from the 1870s, New South Wales, ships at Southampton, all of these things are things that I had to kind of understand what was possible. And when we start to do that, verisimilitude, in a, in a graphic adaptation where visual things are doing all the work, and I get to style in a minute, visual things are telling the plot, very little words, you look at it, you see, you get the information visually. Um, understanding what is and isn't possible is absolutely key, particularly if you're adapting something from a time that is utterly, utterly unlike ours, like, like the 1870s. Um, so, for instance, this gives rise to a kind of idea about, about international travel. And so this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a depiction of a departing ship from Southampton, as it would have looked in 1870, to go to Australia. And so you ask these questions, verisimilitude questions about possibility and impossibility. Um, yeah. And so what do we find in Trollope? Part of the plot in John Caldergate, the source. Uh, the, the, a young Cambridge... Well, I'll give you the, the, the summary. It's on the back. Young Cambridgeshire gentleman gets into debt at college. Uh, university, um, and goes to New South Wales to seek his fortune. Um, he's 19. Uh, on the outward bound journey, he meets and promises to marry a divorced actress called Mrs. Smith. She's 23. Uh, when he reaches Australia, he strikes gold, makes his fortune, comes back, marries his childhood sweetheart in Cambridgeshire. They have a child. Mrs. Smith turns up and says, we're married already. You're a bigamist. I want some, I want some money. I want some money. So, um, in all of that, a great amount of detail. So, ships. So, travelling to Australia. Uh, what was it like, travelling to Australia? Um, Trollope tells us what it was like. He says... And this is from John Caldergate. On board ship, there are many sources of joy of which the land knows nothing. You may flirt and dance at 60. Whoop-de-doo. 
And if you are awkward in the turn of a waltz, you may put it down to the motion of the ship. Ha, ha, ha. You need wear no gloves. Oh, my God, thank God for that. And may drink your brandy and soda without being ashamed. However, if one starts to look at, and that's the, so this is a document of the 1870s, Trollope describing what life on board ship to Australia was like, six months without landfall, no Suez Canal, or it didn't do it because it was longer, Suez Canal existed. So you've got 500 people on a boat that's, I don't know, uh, 450 feet long, with no steam, or maybe a tiny bit of steam, uh, and you go out, and you go out for five or six months, and the next time you set foot on land, you are in Melbourne. It's like, it's like launching yourself from Cape Canaveral and landing on Mars. You, can't, you, don't, you pass a ship, but you don't touch it. Uh, you have class distinction on board ship, but as Trollope says, things are going to be a bit relaxed. So how does this work? What, if I'm going to draw this bit of the story, how does this work? Versimilitude, what's possible, what was, what was possible, impossible. And so contemporary accounts, think of Trollope, very polite, things, things loosen up a bit on board ship. And these are two accounts, contemporary accounts from shipboard uh, from exactly the same period. A, uh, a poor little child died last night, and the girls said they were going to throw it overboard. But I thought they'd be sure to read prayers over it, but not so. They opened the surgeon's window, and they chucked it out. Yeah, no, great, excellent. Oops, I've done it again, sorry. Yeah. Hold on, I'm looking at that. And another, with the vessel nearing shore, and this is actually, I included that in the novel, this novel. With the vessel nearing shore and food running low, the third-class immigrants entertained the first-class passengers when a four-day-old baby was sent to the saloon under a cover of a dish at dinner time, as a joke. Of course, the captain had no idea what was under the cover, and so it caused a great deal of fun. The Victorian age is not like ours. This also makes its way into dispossession. And then, of course, the thing about verisimilitude is it's just as much about what's impossible, what's left out, as what's possible. Two sides of the same coin. In Trollope's novel, there are no mentions of native Aboriginal Australians in New South Wales. There are no mentions of Chinese miners. There are no mentions of, uh, of the military. There are no mentions of the Dutch. There's no mentions of the French. In fact, all that happens in Australia is, uh, is John Caldergate turns up, after having promised to marry Mrs. Smith, he turns up, he goes out with a guide into the bush. Six, months, six weeks later, he's struck gold. Uh, you don't hear from him again for three years until he comes back to Cambridge and tells everybody at home what it was like. So this is Trollope being kind of uh, dealing with his own reader, dealing with his own reader. So I couldn't do that. When I was looking at, when I read the Trollope, when I read John Caldergate, uh, it was impossible for me not to have that thought where are these folks? And it's not a, it's not a politically correct thought, it's a, a thought about verisimilitude. Where are they? And so I thought, I'm going to put them in. Now that is anathema. So I cha I've changed Trollope's plot. We have aboriginals. Um, and the, the, here they are. The way that I've managed all of that is that actually I use them in a very straightforward way. There is a, it, there's a parallel plot, which is Aboriginal, which mirrors the, the, the plot, the plot uh, that, that the Europeans are involved in. Uh, I'm fortunate in that, in so much as uh, um, uh, Aboriginal, Aboriginal folks identify themselves by language. 
um, and their geography is kind of fluid. And so I was able to identify single Aboriginal language speakers of a single Aboriginal language who'd be in the vicinity of our European characters in the Trollope novel at the right time. And so I can have them pass each other, interact with each other without ever knowing each other or nodding to each other, seeing each other. One in an Aboriginal world, which is partly European, and one in an entirely European world, which has no, no Aboriginal aspect at all. So that's good. And in fact, uh, yeah, uh, one of the things I'm proud of in the book is this, is that I thought, well, okay, this is great. What language do these people speak? You know, I'm going to have to use some language, maybe, maybe. I could have decided not to. And I spent two years searching for a translator of English into Wiradjuri, which is the language. And so this is an Aboriginal language from the 1870s, which now only 25 people speak. Okay, so verisimilitude, where are we? Yeah, so uh, hurtling to a conclusion. Hurtling to a conclusion. Um, yeah, Mrs. Smith. So uh, Mrs. Smith is the divorced actress who John Caldergate meets on board. And what's she like? And I have to think about what she's like, because the interesting thing about Trollope is that he often doesn't tell you. He'll tell you what somebody looks like a little bit, but he'll let you go. He's often, he's known, um, he's known for, uh, Trollope's known for not, for not filling in, letting the reader fill in. It's a great technique. And so readers think, readers often think that Trollope's, not, Trollope's novels are, uh, are true to life. And the reason for that is because he actually hasn't told you any detail at all. Psychologically, yes. Otherwise, no. John Caldergate, don't know what he looks like, really. You know, he's kind of squarish, kind of blondish, kind of 19, that's it. Whereas in Dickens, of course, you get these incredible extended dis di descriptions. Mrs. Smith, difficult. She's 23, divorced actress, divorced actress, 23, on a boat to Australia. Uh, it's very, very probable that she's been on the stage since she was 10. No training, divorced, that means that she's had a bit of trouble. What's she doing? How does she look? So. Um, the interesting thing about, about her is that the one thing that Trollope says is that she's wearing a particular type of hat. She's wearing a straw hat, which is battered. Uh, and I, when I was doing my research, uh, I got in touch with folks who know about 19th century fashion. And I said, look, this is a description of Mrs. Smith. What's she like? And the, the costume expert said, uh, oh, uh, um, she's Dolly Varden. Now, Dolly Varden, does anyone know who Dolly Varden is? Was character in the novel. Okay, Dolly Varden is a character in Barnaby Rudge, the Dickens novel, yeah, set in the late, late 18th century. And it was incredibly popular, the novel, when it was published in 1854, or whatever it was. Um, and it spawned a huge passion for Dolly Vardenism. And so Dolly Varden became a, a visible, a visible, uh, what's the word, sign, a sign of what something was like. And I'll say this, this is a painting of Dolly from Barnaby, in Barnaby Rudge, so it's by William Powell Frith. Uh, and so you see, this is what Mrs. Smith on board boat was dressed like. She was dressed like Dolly Varden with her battered straw hat. Um, and you, you think, okay, um, let's have a look, hold on. Yeah, Dolly Varden, uh, sheet music. There's lots, cigar cases, everything. So you see, you, yeah, see what Dolly Varden kind of meant to, meant, to, meant to be like. So this is the first time you see Mrs. Mrs. Smith in my graphic adaptation. And the Dolly Varden is this. The Dolly Varden is a style of dress um, which says that I am, Dolly is, a bit, Dolly is a biddable, innocent, beautiful country girl, gets herself into a bit of trouble, but her, the key aspect is that she's bucolic, not sophisticated in an urban way, uh, she's, she's a proper, happy, country innocent. And so the style of dress became a, uh, became a signal for a fashion, for adopting rustic innocence 
So women would... And in fact, this, this fashion, the, the, the Dolly Varden goes right through to the 20th century, various guises. And it's a faux 18th century fashion with a little straw hat, like a, like a, like, like a Marie Antoinette kind of fashion. But the thing that's key at this point in 1870 is that it's, a, it's an absolute hackneyed old trope. It's like, you know, it's like, well, you put that, put your glad rags on. So actually, the, pro, the, thing, the thing is that Mrs. Smith is dressed as an as innocent country rustic because she isn't one. Why do you need to affect innocence and kindness if you are innocent and kind? You don't. Mrs. Smith's on the make. <laughs> okay. So, let me think. So, move, yeah, moving right to the end. We're good, we're good. How long have we got? Two half hours. Eight minutes. Oh, that's good, okay. So, I, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to leave a bit out. Right, so you see how, yeah. So the other thing, when I talk about verisimilitude, which struck me, uh, approaching Trollope's novel as style rather than plot, as possibility and impossibility in terms of me, producing a visual story, what's, what's, go what's going to ground you in the work is that, is that I discovered, I, was, I worked with a team of people and we did this together, but I'll, so I'll say, we, so we discovered something about, about the Trollope novel, which actually nobody had thought of before, which is great, it's great, it's really exciting. And this is the fact that this novel begins with the word perhaps. And so this is the first page of Trollope's novel in uh, the Blackwood Magazine serialization in uh, 1878. And so it says, perhaps it was more the fault of blah, 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 blah. Um, and so we discovered that Trollope's style is a style of equivocation. Trollope says stuff like, he, he stylistically moves the plot along by saying, um, perhaps it was more the fault of. But it could have been said that he was. Others, however, might have been the opinion that. All in all, one couldn't, really say if he was a, because in this situation he'd been rather like this, although somebody who was there at the time was of a different opinion. Now the big problem with equivocation is that it's bloody hard to draw, <laughs> right? It's a proper problem. It's the problem between, between, uh, in the difference between showing and telling. Trollope is able to equivocate because text allows him to say perhaps, perhaps. I don't know. Now, if you're showing something, either you see it or you don't. And that, yeah. <laughs> so so how, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we do that? So the big problem for me, is if, you, if we come to this point, whoops, yeah, if we, if we came where I came to this point where style drives the plot or is as important as the plot, I've changed the plot already, where the, where how do you, the problem then becomes how do you replace or, or parallel the literary style of an author, i.e. Trollope's literary style, with a visual style. How do you justify and think about it? So, rules. So we developed a series of rules, I, I did eventually, in how this is drawn. And so this, cart, this, cart, this, this graphic novel is very odd as a graphic novel because it, it's drawn to rule, constrained. It, ha it doesn't do these things, it does do, do those things, and those things produce the equivalent of the sensation of reading Trollope. Difficult. So the rules are these. Uh, uh, Trollope, Trollope's even. No drama, or the drama's very little. So, so you don't have, you don't, there's no page turning. It's not a thriller. So, so there's, no need, there's no need to vary the pace of the read. And in comics terms, that means that each panel 
and each page have to be exactly the same. So, you have, so we have a six-panel six grid, and you don't get a big close-up, which speeds you through the read. You don't get a lots of dense panel on the page, et cetera, et cetera. Um, evenness of distribution, first thing. The other thing is that Trollope never really tells you anything about anything. He, lets you, he, he coaxes you into having your own opinion, and therefore you think that what you're reading is true, because actually you've made it up. He's really good at it. So we don't let anybody, the reader, get any closer than 20 feet to the action. And this is a visual trick. So the whole novel, you can never quite tell what someone's expression is. Their body posture, certainly. How they interact plot-wise, absolutely. Their dress, their visual appearance, definitely. But what are they... So there's no physiognomic information, or very, very little. So you, th you might think, oh, he's angry. Oh, no, he's not. He, is he angry? <laughs> then the final thing of these kind of rules is that we uh, move the reader visually around the action. So in each scene, there may be changes in what's going on, we position the reader to see what's happening, no, more than, no, no less than 25 feet away, from this position, and then from this position, and then from this position. And so we have a waltz. We have the reader waltzes with the action. And we do that again and again, regularly. Almost the whole book, the reader moves around. One, two, three. One, two, three. And this sets up a mechanical beat, which seems dynamic, but you can't ever see properly what's going on in someone's face. And that's, that's how we managed it. It's one of the, the ways in which we managed to do that. And quite frankly, it's a pretty major achievement. <laughs> so what it does is that there's two things that it does to finish up. Uh, hold on, let's see how we're going. Yeah, yeah here's another. Uh, here's another. This is clearer. This is clearer. Oh, I should say, okay, these are from Dispossession. I could say you can see the difference between that kind of thing that I've just described and this page by Jacques Tardy, who's the great master of French comics of the 70s. You can see how this is, this is much more incoherent, but its incoherence is cin cinematic. Close-up, cutaway. Could you, can you map the room that all this is happening in? No. In Dispossession, you know where every jug, flower, fireplace is. Yeah, you could, you could draw, you could map that, you can map the whole thing. Versimilitude. So, I'm not going to leave you with a tardy. Hold on. Yeah, this is another page from Dispossession. So all, what does all this do? Two things to finish. What does all this kind of like tortuous kind of thinking... Uh, um, yeah, it's hard work. It's craft. This is stylistic craft, obviously. This is how it works. What does all this tortuous thinking do? Two things. It, it dishabituates you as a reader. It's odd. You start to read it and you think, you think, Christ, this is, this is an odd comic. If you read comics, it's very odd. The rhythm is equal. This distance is odd. This movement, you might not notice it, and then about halfway through you think, hang about, I've been swung around like this again. And then, oh my God, I've been... And so suddenly you are in the grip of a machine, a stylistic machine, a machine for generating style. And what that does is that it shoves you out of your comfort zone. It's not normal. And the thing about the 19th century is that it wasn't. 
And so one of the great tools of this idea about verisimilitude is that it can put the reader, I can put the reader in a place where they've never been before and they think, Christ, this is odd. And that's the, the initial thing. And then the other thing is that it's absolutely rock solid. It's not vague. So one, this regime stylistically shoves you into the plot in a world where you are slightly, not slightly, you, you, think, you, think, you think I'm not at home here. And two, uh, that not-at-homeness not -home is absolutely real and vivid. It's not random. It's not like, oh, it's not spacey. It's not like, oh, where am I now? You're not in free fall. The book's stylistic tropes grip you, and they won't let you go until you reach the end. Now, now if that's not great literature... Oh, no, actually, that's thrillers. <laughs> that's thrillers, isn't it? Is that thrillers? So, uh, so to, to finish, uh, what does all that add up to? I've written, written something here because this is a lit fest. This is where I started. Um, all this adds up to is dispossession has a very distinct emotional gravity. Style, style equals sensation. You feel in a particular way, and that particular way is clear and intense. It's both... Uh, it, now, this is hagiography, obviously. Uh, it's both beautiful and, and challenging. Making use of key aspects of Trollope's novel, stylistically, and our, the reader, relationship to the 19th century to make something, and this is all superlatives, profoundly uh, strange and new. And that's where I'd like to leave it. Thank you. Ah! Thank you. Thank you so much, Simon. Um, I, I know we've reached half past, but we started a bit late, and I'm sure someone here would like to ask Simon a question. So do we have anyone who would like to ask a question? Yes, lady at the back. Um, I was wondering, when you were developing your specific visual style for this story, yeah. was it mostly through um, thinking about it in your research or mostly through actually drawing and figuring out through experimentation with drawing? Uh, both. Both, I think. So, uh, so there, um, the draw drawing, uh, um, drawing is a craft. Writing, uh, writing uh, fiction is a craft. Uh, there, are, there are rules, tricks, devices, some of which I know. Uh, some of which no, uh, your novelists know their tricks and devices and they develop them and discard them. Um, and so there's, I had, uh, at the same time as I was doing what is essentially historic research uh, and reading Trollope and feeling what Trollope's doing in the, nov in the source novel, um, at the same time I'm, co I'm constantly visualising in my head. I've not discussed the colour palette. Uh, there's, a really there's a regime in the colour palette. Uh, so I'm, f I'm feeling the... Um, what, what the way in which I work in terms of drawing is that I'm actually, it, when I start to feel the atmosphere, when I start to feel the light, the, pre the pressure of the air, that's when the that, that this all starts to constitute the image. So, uh, so, the, re so the regime may sound, it is a, it is a machine. The style, this is a very overt stylistic machine. Uh, but actually, what it does is it, it's, design, it's designed to shove forward that sensation. And so, so all of this is very glittery, subfusk, uh, lu luminous. Um, and so you get, there's a, there's, there, all of that is to do with drawing. And so the way in which the drawing is produced is I'm, I'm feeling how, it's pr how, it, how it feels 
based on what I'm reading and how I'm, how I'm understanding what happened and how I want to proceed. just met. Um, <laughs> what are you doing, Simon, that's different from um, the art direction of, of a movie, say, yeah. say of the 80s and 90s, um, yeah. Yeah. most particularly because, you know, you walk into the art department of a, of a, of a David Lean yeah. uh, film yeah, yeah, yeah. and it is completely surrounded. The walls are covered yeah. with just such illustrations. So particularly when you describe the POV, the, yeah, the yeah. walls that you're creating yeah, yeah. Uh, around that particular piece of work, what is different between um, you and, say, John Houston saying in his adaptation of yeah, Moby yeah. Dick yeah. to the lighting cameraman, yeah, yeah. I want that? I think it's... A, uh, um, I'm glad that you're comparing me to Lean and Houston. Uh, quite rightly, obviously. Um, the book's great. Uh, um, uh, the, 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 the answer is nothing. So, but but uh, there are co the conventions of movie are uh, they're, they're not they're not unlike the conventions of comic storyboarding, in particularly in terms of POV or in terms of palette or in terms of light, like the manipulation of light as a kind of uh, keynote in the to the emotional gravity of the drama. Uh, so that I think that, that I think it's very very similar. However, it would be interesting to try and shoot a movie that had these... The, I mean, there are... I think of uh, the Japanese director, Otsu, with the tatami shot, where everything is shot from the, the, the whole... F three or four films shot from the level, the eye level that you'd have if you were kneeling on a tatami mat in a Japanese interior. Well, this is... A, yeah, indeed. And so, the, so, so what happens is that, is that there's an overtness. And the two, the two directors with me in here about doing that, that kind of trick... Um, but there's also a deeply, uh, the lean is overt, and Houston is overt, and so Powell and Pressburger are like outrageously overt, and they know exactly how that is going to produce a sensation in the viewer, and they know how to do that. And so it's all, it's so although there is, this is tri these are tricks, craft tricks, they are all, uh, they're all uh, focused on. Um, the aim is to produce a, a very specific type of sensation in the reader or viewer. And if I've reached the level of a lean in here, then I'm really happy. No, no, but I did, I did. Simon, thank you so much. Yeah, I can we'll assure everyone you have reached the level of a lean, and do please <laughs> buy dispossession if you haven't already. It's fascinating, really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Simon.